Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Hey, you found your way to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to kick off today's message. Let me introduce it to you this way. Does anybody here remember buying their first automobile, their first car? Do anybody remember doing that? Yeah. Okay. So I remember mine, but I spent more on the last television in my house than I spent on that car. Now, I know it was back in the 1900s and all of that and everything, but I mean, it it was a beautiful 74 Chevy Malibu four-door, two-tone brown and rust, all right? And uh, the dealer who sold it to me told me that just one little old lady used to drive it from her house to the grocery store in church and back every week. So I'm sure it was a good car. And that was my first car. That was not an issue. But it did kind of set the trajectory for my teenage years. I'm in a four-door boat to go into school trying to look cool. So anyway, when I got out of high school, I joined the Army, as you know, and, uh, and went to buy my first automobile on credit. And uh, that, it was a truck. I wanted a truck. I wanted a new Tacoma pickup truck, 1988, and we found one. And uh, it was at this dealer in South Carolina. I don't want uh, to call out the dealer. It was, in, it was in Anderson, where Ralph Hayes Toyota is now. So uh, anyway, the, uh, but... I'm not going to call them out. Anyway, so I go there to get this truck. It's a bright red Toyota Tacoma two-seater. And I thought, man, this is going to be great. And I went in to get it. I'm about to leave for Korea. I've just spent six months in boot camp. I'm getting ready to go, go to Korea. I go in to buy it. And the guy said, nice. He said, you just can't buy it. Why not? I got money and a job. He said, yeah, but you have no credit. I said, what I need to get some of that? He said, debt. I said, it doesn't make sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. He said, you've got to have proof that you can pay this back. I said, if I don't pay it back, the army throws me in jail. Of course I'll pay it back. They said, that's all nice. Appreciate your point of view. It just doesn't work. So I did what every boy does. I called his dad, my dad, not his dad. That would have been weird. I called my dad and I uh, said, dad, I need help. And he came down to the dealer and he signed the loan documents with me. He co-signed the loan, or better stated, he guaranteed the loan for me, saying that this debt will be repaid based on his promise to fulfill. Now, we understand that. You've probably been in a similar situation at some point along the way. And uh, if not, and you're a teenager here and you're thinking, I just figured out how to get my parents to get me a new car. I, can't, I take no responsibility for that. But while that makes sense in car, in car business, it also makes sense in the business of salvation. Because see, there was one who came along who guaranteed the payment of your debt. It's not something you could pay. It's not something you had the credit line for. But it's something that he came and put his personal guarantee on and said, that is settled. And that's what I want to talk with you about today as we look at this message simply entitled, The Power of His Personal Guarantee. The Power of of his personal guarantee. When we left off last week, we ended in verse 22 and we heard about this new covenant. I want to talk to you about how this new covenant is guaranteed by the power of Christ's personal 
name. If you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the Word of God? We're in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 22. If you're joining us from home, thank you for being a part of our worship service today. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation, and I hope you'll follow along with us. The Bible says, So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Would you pray with me? Father, in these moments, would you help us to understand not just the potential of salvation, but God, I pray that you would apply it in our lives, that saints would be encouraged, and that those who've yet to trust you would today make the decision to yield and draw near, that you would receive glory. So help us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. If you'd like to follow along, I want to show you a message. uh, And there's really three aspects about Jesus as our personal guarantee I want you to see. There is an outline available for you, so uh, you're welcome to grab that. And uh, you you may say, well, how, how do I grab that? They're actually at your feet. There's a QR code on a, on a tag down there. If you scan that, you'll be able to get to the sermon notes and so forth. Just wanted you to be aware of that. Three aspects of Jesus as our personal guarantee. Notice with me, first of all, his personal ability. His personal ability. Now, the writer in Hebrews has, has spent a great deal of time walking us through, showing us how Jesus is better. He showed us how he was better than the angels and Moses and the high priest. And then he's walked through how Melchizedek and the line through Melchizedek is a better, uh, a better high priesthood substitute than even the Levitical priests. And uh, that caused some angst for some of the folks that's there. But he's now moving in his argument, uh, his argumentation to, from Christ's fitness to serve as our high priest to his actual finished work as the high priest forever. He moves from God's attestation, God's oath that Christ is a priest forever to Christ's personal accomplishment in saving us. Now, I want you to notice the contrast that he presents for us and then just kind of follow his argument as we make our way through. Notice verses 23 to 25. It says, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever. There's something in that distinction that's drawn, this contrast between what the old priests could do, the many, many, many priests of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood could do, and what Jesus did. 
And he wants us to see that by way of contrast. It says, first of all, that Jesus is able to save forever. That word save is the Greek word sozo. And it means to rescue. It means to keep from harm. It means to deliver from death. Because it's to, it, it means to rescue. It carries with it the idea that it's something, someone who can do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. If you could rescue yourself, you don't need rescuing. If you could save yourself, you don't need saving. But because he is the one who saves, it indicates there's something that you cannot do that he is able to do for you forever. Notice not only that it's to save, to sozo us, but it's to do it forever, ponteles, and it means completely, it means always, it means eternally, it means for all time. It's not something that's capricious or vacillates, that's kind of saved, almost saved, very saved, not saved anymore. It's not anything like that. He's able to save forever, ultimately, completely, to its fullest extent and for all time. He is able to do this for you and I. The priesthood, however, by its nature is limited. It's limited, as the writer shows us, because priests die. It's a testament to sin and its consequences to the fact that every priest lived under the same judgment that you and I live under. For uh, because of sin and because of our sin nature, because sin entered into the world, death also entered. And every priest was just like us. No human priest could ever be perfect or could ever be permanent as a priest. Therefore, no human priest could ultimately save or even guarantee salvation. Verse 24 reminds us, though, that not only does Jesus hold the priesthood continually, he continues in his priesthood forever. As such, verse 25 says he's able to save forever. Now, wait. That's a distinction as well, because no priest, no priest could save. He could ask, but he was not able to save. He could inquire, he could beg, he could mediate, but he could not save. A priest could only say, I know somebody and I'll ask him to do it. But Jesus said, I know someone and I am someone and I will save myself. You know, it's a difference between asking someone to do something and being able, having the ability to do it yourself. If I need a plumber, I call somebody. Why do you call somebody? Because I need a plumber. I don't plumb. I need a plumber. Now, I'll call, so I know who to call. I got a plumber I can call. He's in my phone. That's not because I have plumbing problems because he works here. I'll call Tommy Bullock. I'll say, Tommy, I got a problem. He says, I was going to say it like him. I'm not. He'd just come and take care of it. But you know what? When Tommy has a plumbing problem, I doubt if he calls somebody. In fact, why would he call someone? He's a master plumber. Why would he call anybody else? He'd just do it himself. If I'm broken physically, there's something wrong with me. I'm sick, I'm ill, there's something that's, that's broken in me. I call somebody. Why? Because I'm not a doctor. 
I call one. I know to call one, but I can't fix myself. However, if I were a doctor, if you're a doctor, you probably don't call nobody. You just prescribe something for yourself. I say probably because I'm not sure. If you're a nurse, I'm sure you never call anybody. You just fix it yourself. Why? Nurses don't ask for help. They just fix it. They don't give you any sympathy either. They just say, put some dirt on it and rub it for a little while. It'll feel better because they're nurses. I'm not going to try to fix medical stuff because I can't. I could ask somebody, but somebody else has to do it. Jesus asks no one because he is able to save forever. That's a big distinction. The priest could not save. They could mediate at the altar. They could officiate. They could stand between God and man, but they could not save. Jesus is one who can ask and who can save. His personal ability. Notice secondly, his personal acceptability. How can he save? Because he is acceptable. Notice what the scripture teaches us. Verse 26 and 27. It says, for it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did, it's done, this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. See, that which made Jesus acceptable as the forever high priest is the same thing that made him acceptable as our substitute, our sacrifice. Notice how he's described. He's defined, described to us as one who is holy. The word means pious or um, devout. It means pleasing to God. He, in fact, is pleasing to the Father. You say, how do I know that? The Father spoke to that. Jesus at his baptism, as it's recorded, when he came up out of the water, uh, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Again, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when, uh, when the disciples were there with Jesus, the Father testified from heaven and said, This is my Son. Listen to Him. I'm pleased with Him. He's holy, pleasing to God. Not only holy and pleasing, but He's also innocent. The word in the Greek is the word akakos. And it, uh, the a being the negative of that, it means to be not evil. It means to be without fault or not faulted. It means to be not guilty. And by the way, innocent is different than not guilty. Innocent is different than to be acquitted. That makes sense to you and I, in our, even in our justice system. Now, someone could be acquitted of a crime in our nation, which doesn't mean that they're innocent. It just means there's not enough evidence to convict them. Jesus wasn't acquitted. Jesus was pronounced innocent. It's to say he was proven to be innocent. It's one thing for them to say, I can't quite convict you. The glove didn't fit. I can't quite convict you. It's another thing to say, we've proven that you are 
holy, and innocent before God. Back in the day, some of you will recognize this. I like law dramas now, but back in the day, I liked them, and it was Andy was the lawyer, but he, had, he was playing somebody else. It was Matlock. I liked Matlock. If you're going, who's Matlock? TV land it this afternoon in between naps. It'll be wonderful, okay? So Matlock would always, he would always be at, in the trial, and he's making his case, and then he'd say, just one more question. And in it, he would bring the case not just to get his client uh, acquitted, but he would get someone else to be convicted of the crime. They would admit it on the stand or the evidence would point right to them. He would prove this one did it, therefore this one is not just not guilty, this one is innocent. That's what we're talking about with Jesus. Not just acquitted, but innocent of all crime. How do you know he was innocent, Chris? Because he ain't dead no more. He was resurrected. He rose from the dead. The consequences of sin is death. He's not under those consequences. He's resurrected. He's, at the, he's alive today. He's at the right hand of the Father. The scripture tells us he's interceding for you and I. He's innocent. Why? God raised him from the dead. We know it's a testimony right there. He's innocent. You may say, well, I'm not sure that that settles it for me. Let, let me just say to you, if you were ever dead and then not dead, you become an authority on things like this. People like you and I who will die, <laughs> we're not authorities on this. The resurrected one is the authority. Not only is he holy and not only is he innocent, but he's also undefiled. The word means to be pure or untainted. I tried to think of a way I could illustrate this and, and I've got one and some of you are going to send me an email tomorrow. Some of you will get a jump start on it, send it today. But say I was having one of chocolate fits, because I'm going to tell you anyway. I was having a chocolate fit and I decided to make a big batch of brownies, not just for me, but for all of us. I mean all of us. I've got a big old 16-quart mixing bowl and I'm up there stirring the batter on this, these brownies. I'm stirring it in. I mean, there's enough for all of it. It's a lot of batter and yet I'm able to stir it. I'm stirring the batter up and I'm getting ready to do it. I turn my back to go over to the refrigerator for a second and a little mouse comes by and makes a small contribution In a big old bucket of batter. And I just lay it out on a sheet pan and then cut them into a little bit. How many of you want a brownie? I mean, your chances. It's 99.995% chance that that's not the tainted one. Or you could be getting up a bad brownie. You don't want any part of it. Why? Because it might... The whole batch is tainted because it might have become contaminated. When the Bible says Jesus is untainted, it's what he's saying. It's not that he's mostly good. He's basically good. He's 99.995% good. It says he is untainted without any taint. 
He is completely, absolutely pure. That's the call. That's the statement. It's different than all of us. Not only is he holy and innocent and undefiled or untainted, but he's also separated from sinners. It's the Greek word horizo, not to be confused with horizo, which is Mexican sausage. It means to be divided from. It means to be separated from. It means to be distinct from. Now, he's not saying that he is separated from people who sin. No, no, that's not the case at all. It does mean that he resisted the practice of sin. How do you know he didn't avoid the people, Chris? Because he got in trouble for hanging out with them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher hang out with sinners if he's really a holy man? Jesus said that he came to save sinners. He came to call them back to God. He came, by the way, to do that, requiring him to be in and among them and also requiring that he not accept them as they are. I know we live in a culture today that says, why not just accept people like they are? They're all God's little children. They're all, they're all blessed and loved, and, and he just loves them like they are. God loves you as you are, but too much to leave you where you are. God wants to bring you to what his plan and purpose always was, not to leave you where you are in a condemned state, struggling, suffering, separated from his purpose, plan, and blessing for your life. Jesus was separated from sinners, which is to say he was separated from the act of sinning. Matthew 11, verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a f here's his best title yet, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful he's a friend of sinners or I'd not have a friend. I need a friend like that. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's separated from the conduct of sinners and he's exalted, the scripture says, above the heavens. So catch this. He separated himself to God, which necessarily means he separated himself from the things opposed to God, from sin. The one determines the other. And this all made Jesus able, able to do things that all the other priests could not because they were weak. Hebrews 7 verse 28 says, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. This is why Jesus is declared perfect forever. He's acceptable forever. The word perfect speaks of his completeness, not just then, but always complete, always, period. No new salvation, no new savior, no new revelation. He's the final, the perfect, the complete word of God, full stop. You ever think about how few things in our world are permanent? Not life, life's not permanent. Not us, we're changing every day, our condition, our shape, our health. Not even our circumstances are permanent. Now, our culture's not permanent. Hey, even the constitution of our nation, from the very beginning they built in a process to correct its imperfectness, its, to make it not permanent. They built a system in for how you change it because they knew it wouldn't be permanent 
And it's the founding document. But Jesus is permanent forever. His personal ability, his personal acceptability. Notice finally his personal advocacy. His advocacy. Verse 25. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. A priest's mission was to represent the people before God. In in that, he interceded before God on behalf of the people. He represented them. He carried their concerns to him. He stood in their place. Jesus, the Bible says, is an advocate for us in that while priests were weak because they were temporary, Jesus, who's perfect, stood as that permanent, perfect mediator, the advocate that we have before the Father interceding, the Scripture says, for us. That word advocate's a beautiful picture for us since I've already talked about Matlock who in our system would have been a would have been an advocate notice how Jesus pleads our case before the father first John 2 verses 1 and 2 John writes and says my dear children I'm writing to this this to you so that you will not sin but if anyone does sin God's perfect plan is that you will not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. Now catch this, that's who he has been from the beginning. Jesus wasn't drafted. The Father didn't look down and say, man, things have gotten really hairy down there. Son, I know we were just going to exalt you straight up, but, but now I need you to go take care of this. No, from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, John writes, he was the Lamb of God to satisfy the sin debt of the world. His own name means this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's baked into the name. In Hebrews, there's three primary titles that are used to identify Jesus. Twelve times he's referred to as the Son. Twelve times he's referred to as the Christos or the Messiah. Fourteen times he's referred to by his own personal name, the name Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. But like in all places, we understand or unpack the meaning of the name to see how did the, how does the scriptures tell us about what does it mean to save? How how has he gone about the process of saving, of bringing us to that place? Hebrews 2 says Jesus is higher than the angels. Hebrews 3 says he is the apostle, the sent one, and the high priest of our confession. Chapter 4 says he is, Jesus is the son of God. Chapter 6 says Jesus is the forerunner in the presence of the Father. Chapter 10 says Jesus is the sanctifying offering 
Jesus is our blood sacrifice. Chapter 12 says Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Chapter 12 says Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Chapter 13 says Jesus is the unchangeable one. The same yesterday, the same today, and the same forever. Chapter 13 goes on and says Jesus is the one who suffered outside the gate. It says that he is the one worthy of eternal glory. He is our great shepherd. And chapter 7 where we've been today says that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. He's the co-signer. He's the one that promises the debt is paid. He is the guarantee of a better covenant. And verse 24 says he's the final priest. Who? For all those who draw near to God through him. His purpose is clear. Jesus saves. His qualifications are unimpeachable and unchallenged. He is acceptable. And his activity right now, he is interceding for you. Ready to save. For all those who draw near. But that's the rub, isn't it? It didn't say for all those who got emotional. It doesn't say for all those who uttered a string of words together. But for those who would draw near to God through Him. You know, to draw near means you have to draw away from. You have to draw away from something. You can't, you can't sit over in your stuff and go, Jesus, save me. I'm not moving. I'm going to stay right here with my stuff. If you're going to draw near to Jesus, you've got to draw away from the rebellion here. What's crazy to me sometimes, I'm not trying to be ugly. I just want you to hear me. What's crazy to me sometimes are the people that say, I draw near to Jesus, but I'm not willing to draw away from stuff. They'll try to convince you they've drawn near to Jesus, that they trust Him for eternity, but they don't trust Him with their checkbook. They trust Him for eternity. They don't trust Him in the neighborhood to tell people that He's the only way. They'll trust Him in relate. They'll trust Him for salvation. They won't trust Him with a relationship. Hey, we've gotten to a place now. We trust God forever for eternity. We can't trust Him by that, that, that anatomical males or boys. Can I, just, can I just help you with something? If you can't figure out that you were created as a boy and that God did that purposefully and everything else is a lie, you ain't ready for heaven. If you're going to draw near, you got to draw away from. You got to be willing to say, I know that world. I lived, I made that world. But I heard one interceded for me before the Father for those who would draw near to Him. It says, though He extended His hand and said, Come to me if you're weary and burdened. Come to me, don't stay where you are. Come to me if you're weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you'll find rest for your soul. Here, where you would draw near. What's crazy is you may be listening to me and you're just set down right here. You said, but that back in, you know, 1861, I prayed at Vacation Bible School and uh, I said those words and I, my life ain't got no better. How can I trust Jesus? Friend, you got to draw near. You got to get up from where you are. And you've got to take a step toward Jesus. And you've got to commit to following wherever he goes. Well, where's he going? He's going to fulfill your purpose. Well, what is it? You're not ready to drive. You just need to jump in the seat and ride for a minute. You need to draw near with him. Chris, I'm looking for a different kind of commitment. Then you'll need a different kind of Jesus because this Jesus only does that. Let me say that again. If you're looking for a different kind of commitment, you'll need a different kind of Jesus because this Jesus only does that. Only does that. Well, that's not what the TV guy said. Okay. Draw near. I don't know if I can, Chris. Oh, you can because he can and he's interceding for you. Do you know what it means to intercede? It means he's sitting there and he said, may it please the heavenly court, Chris Aiken, sinner, present myself in his place and the ruling from the Father Acceptable. Acceptable. You pull Jesus out and Chris stands there. I present myself to the heavenly court. Unacceptable. Guilty. Guilty. Who draws near to the Father through him. Acceptable. Have you ever met him, this Jesus? You yielded your life to him, this Jesus? Surrendered to him, this Jesus? If you haven't, you need to know what he said. He's interceding for you. acceptable for those who draw near to the Father through Him. Would you pray with me? If you're listening to me and you, the answer is, I don't know, Chris, or no, sir, I've not ever done that. Then today you need to know God's not, God's not seeking your destruction. God's seeking your reconciliation. He's saying to you today, come home, come home, come home. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. We've been walking through for several weeks in this study of how Jesus is better. And we spent the last couple of weeks centered around this figure called Melchizedek. 
and uh, how he is a type, a picture, a signpost, uh, an image that points to Jesus as the ultimate, as as we're going to see today, uh, the perfect high priest. So we're going to be looking today at a perfect priesthood in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. And can I invite you, if you're able, stand with me in honor of the Word of God. If you're joining us from another place this morning, we're honored, grateful that you're here, part of our worship experience together. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation, and I would encourage you to follow along with us. Hebrews 7, beginning verse 11, the Bible says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it's attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, There is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Pause right there and pray with me. Father, would you in these moments help us to understand something? Lord, I'll admit it's just so different from us, from where we live, from the world we live in. And rather than just dismiss it as some archaic thing, help us to understand it and then to respond to it by faith in such a way that it brings honor and glory to the name of Christ. That's our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You be seated. If you'd like to follow along, there is an outline that's available for you on the app and at the link they'll give you. But uh, I want to show you this morning four things, four aspects, four uh, pieces about Christ in the likeness of Melchizedek as we uh, come to understand this perfect priesthood. In order to have a perfect priesthood, I want you to notice with me, first of all, there must be another priest. There must be another priest. Now, let me ask you this question. How, how many of you have one of, one of these? You, you know what I'm talking about? Taskmaster, you know, slave driver, all of this, this thing, right? It's a phone. It, it used to, you could call people. Now you do everything but call people, but it's a telephone. And, uh, and occasionally, I get, by occasionally, I mean every day, I get a software update for my phone of some sort. This morning, well, when my phone turned on and woke me up, there were little flags or badges or whatever they call it on it that told me, hey, not only do you need uh, a software update, and we've provided that for you, but you need 64 apps updated today. 
And I thought, man, I'm way behind. I'm undone. Now, here's what's crazy. They didn't send me all that because they thought, well, the, it's pollen weather. So let's put all the colors. Let's just change the window dressing on these apps so it has just a different cover picture and stuff. They do do that occasionally, but most times they send it with a warning that says this fixes a security breach or a bug or something that was deficient in the software that you had. And in order for it to work properly, you need to put in an update. You get updates because there's something wrong with the original. Do you follow the analogy? So updates and changes correct deficiencies with something the way it is. Look at verse 11 again. Now, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? You don't need an update to something that works perfectly. The reason there's an update is because there's something about the Levitical priesthood that was insufficient for what the people truly needed, which is salvation. So, God sends another priest. The point, Melchizedek and thus Jesus was not just a feature update or window dressing, but a whole new set of code to correct, catch us now, a planned shortcoming in the priestly system. A planned shortfall, a planned shortcoming. In other words, God wasn't caught by surprise. He didn't like establish a Levitical priesthood and then look up one day and went, shoot, I had no idea this wasn't going to do what I wanted it to do. Man, now what are we going to do? He didn't go on Google and then try to find a new solution. He didn't hit chat AI or whatever and try to figure out how in the world am I going to correct this. God knew all along the Levitical priesthood would not save. Now it does fulfill the purpose for which it was created, but that purpose is not salvation. The Levitical priesthood was always intended to be a temporary and a purposeful system which would point to God's means of salvation. It would point to Jesus. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, for when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. There's a couple things to grab there. There's like some Easter eggs hidden in that thing. I know we're getting to that season, but there's like some Easter eggs in there. First of all, this priest he's talking about, the one that's center stage, comes from a tribe, just not the tribe of Levi. So we know it's not Melchizedek. Can't be talking about Melchizedek. Melchizedek precedes the tribes. So it's, a, it's one who comes after, who's from a tribe, but it's a tribe that was never given the responsibility to officiate at the altar. Now we're going to get to the covenant change, the law change, but this change that we're talking about here speaks of the priestly order of the Levites. Now, can I just say to you, the Levites did not enter and uh, did not enter into the priesthood because they answered an ad on Indeed. All right, they weren't sitting around one day and going, man, we're bored. Maybe we can work in church and, uh, and create all. That's not what happened. God specifically designed, set them apart, set them aside, called them and gave them uniquely the responsibility of being priests of God's people and priests before holy God. If you're taking notes, jot down Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 8 and 9. The Bible says, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi for this purpose, to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, 
and to stand before the Lord, to serve Him and to bless in His name until this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. So even when the apportionment of the land in the promised land, the land covenant that was given to God's people, the Levites did not get a a section to call their own. They didn't get like a, a region. They didn't get a neighborhood that was theirs. They were scattered in and among and served in and among the people in all of their territories because they served as priests before God and priests to the people. They interceded on behalf of the people before holy God and they blessed on behalf of God toward unholy people. They had a purpose that was given to them by God. Now we're told that another priest is coming and he comes from a different tribe. That sets the stage for us because Here, the reference is to the lineage of Jesus, who is of the house and of the line of David. Priests were descended from the line of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. While both David and Solomon made offerings at the altar on occasion, you may remember, still no descendant of Judah, no Judite, was assigned as a priest. None served in the priestly line or in that priestly role. None. The line of Judah was a royal line. It's the line of kings. By the way, we sang about that today. We sang about the, the, the king from the, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Jot down Re- Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now this idea of a priest and a king, uh, both being of the the same person and and from a tribe, should draw your attention back to a different kind of priest, the Melchizedek. Draws our mind back to the fact that Melchizedek, while a priest of the Most High God, the Scripture identifies, he also was a king. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 identify him and said that his name translates king of Salem or king of peace and also king of righteousness. The order of Melchizedek centralizes the king and the priest in one person, one office, foreshadowing Christ's fulfillment of this task. Only Christ fulfills as this another priest, this other priest who comes and replaces the Levitical priesthood. Now you might ask, well, if Chris, if God instituted a change in the priesthood once, why not again? Maybe he's going to do it again. Maybe he has done it again. That's, that's interesting and it's logical. It's just a, against the scripture. So notice not just another priest, but notice secondly, a permanent order. This order of Melchizedek is not a temporary order. It's different than that. It's a permanent order. Notice a permanent order. Verses 15 to 17. It says, and this is clear still. If another priest arises to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, in other words, being a Levite, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it's attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In those three verses, you find three uh, 
key features that you don't want to miss. First of all, the priest that we're talking about here is not Melchizedek, but he's in the likeness of Melchizedek. If it were Melchizedek, he'd say, and he's a priest forever by the name of Melchizedek. But it's not Melchizedek, it's in the likeness of. In the same order of, in the same way as Melchizedek was a different kind of priest, this new priest, who's not Melchizedek, will come in that same way. He's in the likeness of Melchizedek in that he doesn't share the genealogy of the tribe of Levi. He has no, the Bible gives us no information about his beginning or his end. Verse 16 says that this priest has an indestructible life. He lives forever. He never dies. He is forever alive. Can I tell you something? That makes this a permanent order. All of the Levites, all of the priests that served, all of the high priests from Aaron all the way through, every one of them one day had a funeral in their honor. But there is no funeral for this high priest. His life is unable to be destroyed. It is an indestructible life. He lives forever. That's why verse 17 says, he, God has sworn that you will be a priest forever. The Levitical line was never intended to be perfect. It was never intended to come to completion. It was never intended to be without uh, transition or change. Rather than being intended for perfect, it was intended as preparation for perfect. It pointed to the perfect. It points toward a picture of an eternal priesthood of Christ. See, the eternal and indestructible life of the Lord Jesus is a source of great hope for us. If Jesus is not alive, there is no ultimate hope for you and I. If Jesus is not alive, if his life can be destroyed, then there is someone or something in some place that is somehow more powerful than him. But if his life is indestructible, if death cannot reign with him, if no one can take him down, if he reigns victorious, if he is unable to be conquered, then he is the great conqueror, then he is a permanent order, then he is the last and final, the forever high priest. It's the basis of all hope. I think it's what was in the hymn writer's mind when they said, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. There's something about the fact that Jesus lives that gives us security, that gives us stability, that gives us a sureness. That life in Christ makes it possible to look at everything else and go, I'm not intimidated by you because he lives. It's an indestructible life. Another may say, well, if Jesus was always the plan... Why didn't God just start there? Pull up your chair. I usually find it difficult to ask God or to offer him counsel. Now God, I know you went after the Levitical tribe, but did you not see this coming? You should have just started with Jesus. I found it foolish to try to counsel God. It's a It's crazy to look at the 
creator of the universe and try to tell him how he can do better. I'd love to tell you that having known that, I've always practiced that, but I often give God advice. And thank goodness he doesn't answer with lightning bolts. Here's the answer, short answer of why he didn't start with Jesus. It wasn't the perfect time. How do you know that? Because Galatians 4 Verses 4 and 5 tell me, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that He might receive, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God, for whatever reason, in whatever way, according to His own wisdom, said, I didn't send Jesus because it wasn't time. But when it was time, I sent him perfectly that you might experience adoption and be made sons of the living God. There's another priest, there's a permanent order. Notice third, a preeminent approach. A preeminent, in other words, there is no better approach to rightness with God than the way God provides through Jesus. You may say, well, Chris, didn't, didn't Moses, the great deliverer of Exodus, the one who went up against the most powerful uh, nation on the planet at the time, didn't he bring the people of God out and didn't he give them a law? And that, didn't that law then give the requirements of the priesthood? Yes. But the purpose of the law was never to provide salvation. The purpose of the law was never to be salvific. The law fulfills a purpose, and it fulfills it perfectly. Its purpose was just not to save. Galatians 3 verse 24 tells us, Therefore, the law has become our tutor. You may have a translation that says schoolmaster. It has become our tutor. It points to, in order to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. It says, the more you know about the law, the more you know you need Jesus. The more you understand God's righteousness, the more you understand your wrongness. The more you understand who God is and how God is and how one must be to relate to God, the less you try to accomplish it or feel confidence in the law, the more you lay down at the foot of the cross and go, God, help me. For I can't get there on my own. Hebrews 7 verses 18 and 19 says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Now pause right there. That is very strong language to a group of Hebrews about the Hebrew law. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now notice the description, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the description of the law. Two words, weakness and uselessness. Now those words don't indicate that the law did not serve a purpose. It did serve a purpose. It was given by God. It just its, it's weakness is it cannot save. Its uselessness is that it cannot save. It fulfilled its purpose, but its purpose was never to save. Rather, 
it was to demonstrate our great need for a Savior. Paul taught us this in Romans chapter 7, in verse 7, for instance, where he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Here's what he said. He said, the more I read the law, the more I realized how away from the law I was. The more I understood God's righteousness, the more I knew my own unrighteousness, the more I understood the holiness of God, the more I realized that my very best day, the Bible says, is like filthy soiled bandages in the sight of a holy God. The very best I've got to offer is pointless, it's broken, it's worthless. The law cannot get me there. You may say, well, what if I kept the law perfectly? There's only been one who ever kept it perfectly and he laid down his life so the rest of us could get right with God. Nobody else has ever done that. No one else could do that. The law reminds us how messed up we are and how apart from God's grace, we're all doomed. But by the grace of God, we have hope. The law pointed to a need that only Jesus could fulfill. Our relationship with the Father could only be mediated by the Son. Jesus taught us this. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, let me just say to you, Jesus was far beyond his times. Did Jesus not know that we would live in 2000 and whatever year this is? 2023. I got stuck in COVID somewhere and don't remember how we got out. But anyway, in 20... Did Jesus not know that the values of our culture today, the ethics of our world today, would say it's so narrow and exclusive to say there's only one way. There ought to be many ways. In fact, who says there's only one truth? Can I have my truth? You sure can if you've got a professorship somewhere. You can write about your truth and you can have your truth and I can have my truth. They could be contradicting truth, but they could both be true to you and to you. Hey, can I help you with something? That ain't right. You can write that down. That ain't right. Two contradictory things can't both be true. They could both be wrong. One could be right. One could be wrong. This one could be right. This one could be wrong. They could both be wrong, but they can't both be right. There must only be one way to God. Or the Bible, you can't trust it. If you can't trust it in one verse, you might as well throw it as far as you can, as hard as you can. And just go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if it's true, then everything else has to bow a knee before it. I'm just here to say to you, you may think, man, I'm telling you, I believe this, Chris. I think you're just too narrow. I think you're too small-minded. I think you're not a man enough of the world to realize what, what good really is. Let me tell you something. If you've ever met him, is it the name of Jesus wonderful? Is it the name of Jesus full of beauty? Isn't it powerful? Didn't we sing this? If that's true, then man's a liar. Well, Chris, you'll never get people to come to church. You talk like that. I ain't trying to get people in church. I'm trying to get church in people. 
This is stunningly exclusive language. Jesus said, I am the definite article, the way. He didn't say I'm one way. He didn't say I'm a way. He didn't say I'm the best possible way for you where you live. He said, I'm the way. He said, I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one, nowhere, at no time, in no place, in no generation, from Adam to the end, comes to the Father but through me. Well, Chris, that just... It just seems that people like we prayed for a few minutes ago, that it ought to be okay if they're just earnest where they are, if they just work with their very, very best in their heart, that they would be okay. Logic would say that God would allow them to come in in their own way. Can I tell you something? Logic can be flawed. I was thinking of this story this morning as I was praying through the message to bring here. Several years ago, uh, my whole tribe was in Jody's Honda Pilot, and we were headed off on an excursion. I, we were going to a shooting range. I was going, we were going to put holes in targets. We were goofing around and just all of us going. And, and we'd gotten detoured somewhere and ended up going up a road. This is when we lived in Florida. We were going up a road and, and got detoured. We came across, and where I wanted to be was like right here. And the map said I needed to go down here and back up over here. And on my little GPS screen, I could see here and here and a line. And I thought, well, surely we can get from here to here and skip all of this. Logic says go this way. Or logic says go this way. The map said go this way. So I had to get a witness. I called Waze. Waze said, oh, you can do it. Watch Waze. Waze is not the way. Jesus is the way. Waze a liar. Me and Waze, we took this trip. We're cruising across and the roads got, well, they got less improved. They went from asphalt to tar and gravel to gravel to dirt and gravel. Trees went from this far apart to like right on top of you. We're going through this place. It's all washed out. I mean, there's like ruts and stuff in through there. And, uh, and, and there we go. Waze is like, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I'm like, we ain't turning back. I'm a guy. I'm a guy. I'm a guy. We're going straight through here, going straight through here. And the further we went, the louder the banjo music got. And the scenes of deliverance in my head. Till we got to a place to where we just couldn't go any further. And we were right there, only there was a dead end. You couldn't get there from here. Logic said it, the map on the screen looked like it. But I don't get to choose what actually works just because I want it to be different. So I had to do that thing that men always hate to do. Repent, back up, drive back through Banjoville back down and back up in order to get there. Why? Because there is a way and you don't get to define it. I wonder if there aren't a few people listening to me right now that are stuck right there. You've heard how only Jesus saves and you can only be saved by surrendering total control of your life to him. 
And yet you're on a self-directed expedition looking for an alternative. Friend, you can't do better than Jesus. We sing together another priest in a permanent order and a preeminent approach. Notice finally, a powerful attestation. A powerful attestation, an oath. A powerful attestation. Look at verse 20 and following. <clears throat> he says, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he who with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Not only did God plan for salvation through Jesus before the beginning of the world, and He revealed all of that in His Word, but He also, as we saw in chapter 6, attested to it, swore to it with an oath. Jot down, remember, Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God not only said it, but he even swore by it. He swore to it by himself through Christ, making it clear and clearly impossible for it to be anything other than absolutely true. It leads me to this conclusion. If you miss heaven, it won't be because God did not make it clear. If you miss heaven, it won't be because God was ambiguous or he waffled. If you miss heaven, it won't be because God did not make it abundantly clear, straight, and simple how you could experience it. If you walk about without abundant life, it's not because God didn't promise it or God doesn't make it possible. It'll be because you didn't trust it. It may be that you didn't trust what God said. It may be that you tried to earn rather than receive. It may be that you never heard, but it'll not be that God waffled on the answer. Jesus is the answer. He's the perfect priest. He's the permanent priest. He's the preeminent priest. And this powerfully reinforced by the Father who said it and then swore by himself that it was true, making it impossible to be anything but. So here's the question. What are you negotiating with? Here's how we'd say it in South Carolina. What you dickering with God about? We say that in North Carolina too, right? What? Yeah, you don't have to use real words, just nod. Yes, no, okay. What are you negotiating with him about? Can he not really give you abundant life? I know he said he would, but can he not? Maybe you say, well, I'm sure he can, but I'm still trying to get it on my own. Listen, talk about logical conflict. Jesus is the way to abundant life. But I'm trying to do it without him. It's a dead end road. Does he not give abundant life? 
Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, I am the way to abundant life. Is Jesus not able to answer all of our questions and end every debate? Is Jesus not able to be the answer to your relational concerns? Well, I know Jesus can fix heaven, but how can he help me pick a boyfriend? Maybe he created the boy and knows the right one, and you can just trust him to save you from all the wrong ones. They might be. There's more wrong ones than right ones. Are y'all following me? Can't you trust him? Can't you believe in him? Anytime we resist him, we're saying, I believe there's another way, a better way, an easier way, a more effective way than you. What are you negotiating with God about? Maybe it's your marriage and you're thinking, yeah, well, I, I know the Bible says certain things, but now here's what, here's what I learned reading this book. Here's what I read on Instagram or TikTok. That tells me what I really need to know. It needs a software update. God ain't changed. Because he's perfect. Is God not the answer to your anxiousness? I read another article this week about how we live in such anxious times. In fact, even before COVID, catch you this free. I'm going to share this at a talk I'm doing in a couple weeks. The, uh, the rate of anxiety increased by more than 30 points between 2012 and 2018 among teenagers. 30% increase in anxiousness. Is Jesus not the answer to your anxiousness? Did he not say in his word, cast all your cares, worries, anxiousness, anxiety on him because he cares for you? Was not the foundation in a person? Can you not trust him with that? Yeah, but my therapist says I need to trust my therapist. Inasmuch as your therapist is in line with the one who made you, good. Believe in that. But if your therapist is pointing some way away from Jesus, you ought to check the yellow pages. Do we still have yellow pages? You ought to Google a better therapist. Is Jesus not sufficient for our anxiety? Is Jesus not sufficient for our shame? I know you've blown it. I've blown it. We've blown it. The harder we try, the behinder we get. Is Jesus not sufficient for shame? Is Jesus not the one who said, let me take on all the shame of all the people in all the world all at one time. Let me be humiliated that you might have abundant life. You say, yeah, but Chris, I'm just a worm. If you're a Christian, you're a worm with a crown. You're a worm with a crown and a, and a purple cape. You a worm with a crown and a purple cape and a name. You a worm with a crown, a purple cape and a name and a king. And you may be a worm, but you're the best worm they got. Why? 
Is Jesus is sufficient. Is Jesus sufficient for your shame? For your anxiety? For your struggles? For your failures? Is he? Whatever it is you're negotiating with God about, whatever it is you've been holding back and not releasing to him, whatever it is that's been keeping you from going all in with him, whatever that question is, the answer is Jesus. It's embodied in the chorus of the hymn that reminds us to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. For the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.